And we all talk like that. So we all describe the dreams that we pursue when we, you know, hopefully inevitably got better. And then the sad truth of it was, as you'd continue spending time with this group, because it was over an eight month period that I was doing chemotherapy every two weeks, inevitably somebody wouldn't show up to the next one. And it wasn't necessarily because they died, but sometimes it was. It was because the, the treatment wasn't working and they were had run out of options and they had to come face to face with the fact that they weren't gonna get that second chance. And when you endure something like that and you survive it, very often you experience what psychologists call survivor's remorse, survivor's guilt. And this is a common thing that takes place with our service members when they come back and the rest of their team was killed or some a group of their team was killed. And they think, you know, why did I survive that? I didn't deserve to come back. I didn't do anything differently. And you, you literally have a sense of guilt and remorse over having come back when others didn't. And I didn't experience that. I did experience something that I called survivor's obligation. And that was to live out the dreams and the commitments that we made in that room together, knowing that I did get a second chance and I didn't deserve it. And I didn't do anything differently than they did. And I didn't want it any more than they did. I just got this second chance and here it was. And instead of feeling guilty or remorseful about it, I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to realize the things I talked about in that room and to change my life in a meaningful way. And so Survivor's Obligation, the book title and, and meeting up with my co-author, Chris Strickland and, and everything from that came from, from those moments. Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Hey friends, I am Cal and welcome to episode 78 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. As you know, our goal is to help you live more intentionally and become the type of leader that others love to follow. And no matter where you are in your life or in your leadership journey, we wanna help you grow and get to the next level of your life and of your leadership. And one of the ways that we do that is we bring on amazing guests and we try to tease out life and leadership wisdom that you can go and apply right away. And today I'm excited to bring you a conversation from the vault back in April of 2020 that I had with Joel Thor Neeb. And I'll tell you more about Joel in just a second, but I wanted to let you know that this is gonna be our last episode for 2021. At the end of the year, I always like to slow down a bit, reflect, plan, create more space for quality time with family. And so in an effort to do that, this is going to be our last episode for the year. But we do have some exciting new content that we're going to be releasing in the new year. We have, for example, Bob McDonald, the former CEO of Procter & Gamble, Mike Irwin coming back on the show, to talk about his new book, Leadership is a Relationship. We also have Ryan Hawk coming back on the show to talk about his new book, The Pursuit of Excellence. We have Chris Fussell, a Navy SEAL and the president of the McChrystal Group and many more inspiring interviews and also some original content. So a lot of exciting things happening in the new year, but we will be taking a short break. Really, that just means we will not be releasing a new episode at the end of December. So let me tell you about our guest for today, Joel Thorneeb, and I intentionally selected this interview for re-release because Joel's story of surviving cancer really helps all of us confront the tough reality that at some point we're going to die. 
And that's not a fun thing to think about, but it's something that I think can help all of us when we really think about it, that our time is limited. It helps us live more intentionally. It helps us live in a more meaningful way. It helps us put the big rocks in first and make sure that the things that matter the most are how we spend our time. And it's amazing Joel will tell us in this interview about that story, about how he survived. He was a stage four cancer survivor and how that's changed the way he lives now. Joel is also the CEO CEO of Afterburner. It's a global consulting firm. He's a former fighter pilot. He's the best-selling author of Survivor's Obligation, where he talks about his story of surviving cancer. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Real quick, I want to ask you, though, how has your year been? What have been some themes in your life this year? I hope that you can find some time to slow down, to reflect on your year, to take some notes, to turn the experiences of this year into insights for your future. Another practical way that I like to reflect at the end of the year is I like to, I shared this on episode 24, is I just go through my phone and I just review photos from the year. And I'm always amazed that big moments from the year that just for whatever reason I just forgot about weren't top of mind come back to me as I do that little exercise and I'm able to glean themes from my life that help me reflect and help me move forward into the new year with a little bit extra focus. And one of the themes from my life, just to share one from this past year, has been slowing down, has been creating space for a more healthy life, trying to fight my inclination, maybe you can relate to this, for hurry, for digital distraction, for just busyness. And I've tried to exchange all of those things with more presence with my family, just mentally being present with friends, with with myself, with, with God. And one of the practical ways that we've implemented this as a family, just a slowing and creating space, has been to carve out Saturdays as a day of rest, as kind of the Christian Judeo tradition of a Sabbath And that has been really powerful for us. So I just wanted to share that with you as as one theme and one one thing that I really hope to bring into the new year for me has just been slowing and Sabbath. Because I found that without uh, what tended to happen before is we would just sprinkle a little bit of rest throughout the weekend. But now we intentionally set aside Saturday for family time, for rest and growth. And anything else that any work that needs to be done, well, we'll just do it on Sunday. So that's been one little theme for me. But I'm curious for you, shoot me a note. Let me know what, what have been some themes from your year? What have been some things that you've learned in this, in this new year that you plan to bring into 2022? And I just want to thank you again for being on this journey with me. And lastly, I wanted to let you know about an exciting event, an in-person event that we're partnering with uh, Military Mentors on. It's called The M Moment. It's going to be a live event in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, January 22nd. And I will put links to the information about the event in the show notes of this episode. We're partnering with Military Mentors. We're going to have a booth set up. This is going to be a great event for those like many of you who are interested in elevating your leadership and development in the new year to connecting and networking with growth-oriented individuals and starting off the new year with a new focus. So I hope you'll consider signing up for that live event Saturday, January 22nd in DC. And that's all I got. I hope that you have a wonderful holiday season with your family or with whoever you spend that time with. 
And I'm really excited to connect with you in 2022. And without any further ado, please enjoy this very inspiring conversation with Joel Thor Mead. Thor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Cal. Excited to be here. I, I so enjoyed your book, Survivor's Obligation. Thank you so much for writing it. As I was mentioning before we hopped on here and hit record, it's one of the few books that actually I think has kept me up at night. I was reading it in bed and I had to tell my wife, hey, babe, I'm going to keep reading because I was right in the middle of the story. So great work. I appreciate that. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you live through it and you certainly stay up at night during the, those moments as well. So I, I, can, uh, I can appreciate that somebody else reading it would kind of be on the edge of their seat because I certainly was going through it. Well, I'm so excited for you to share your story with my audience. Thanks for coming on today. And I'd love to jump right in to take us back to, I guess it was January of 2010, sometime in 2010. You, you seem to be at the top or the pinnacle of your career as a fighter pilot, which is super cool, by the way. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But tell us what happened back in 2010 that changed the course of your life. Yeah, so it's 2010. I've got a young family, a one and a three-year-old, and I'm flying uh, fighter planes at this time. I was in uh, teaching in a trainer aircraft for this particular assignment, and uh, and just you know having the time of my life. It was it was a you know very purposeful existence with the military, and felt like I was making a difference. I was uh, in the final interview process for the uh, the Thunderbirds to become one of the next Thunderbird pilots, and uh, just things were things were going fantastic. In the back of my mind, I had this strange little nagging issue that was occurring with a little bit of pain in the bottom right-hand side of my abdomen. And it really only happened when I, when I was flying. If you, if you know much about being a fighter pilot or a trainer pilot in aircraft that, uh, that pull a lot of Gs, a lot of G-forces, you have to wear a G-suit. And so, Cal, what that is, is it's really fancy pants you put on that inflate against your body so that it pushes uh, against your blood vessels to keep the blood in your head because the, the danger when you're pulling G's, like when you're riding a roller coaster, uh, and you feel that sinking feeling as you're doing a loop yeah. is that not only does your, is your entire body sinking, your blood inside of you is sinking as well. And, and it can pull in your feet and leave your head. And of course, blood leaving your head going 400 miles an hour in an airplane is never a big deal. Yeah. And so you, you push against that with the G suit. Long story short, I had this pain nagging issue when the G suit would inflate against my lower right hand side of my abdomen, like mm -hmm. a two on a scale of one to 10, nothing to get excited about. Yeah. And so here I was trying to figure out, is this something that I can, you know, should bring up to doctors? Is this, is this even worth mentioning? And as a fighter pilot, they, we were trained to, to mention everything. And so I did. And for about a year, the doctor just kind of swept it under the rug. And uh, in January of 2010, we started getting symptoms that wouldn't allow us to sweep it under the rug anymore. Hmm. So what kind of symptoms and, and what did you eventually discover as you I guess we're able to reveal what we were really feeling and the doctor started to pay a little more attention. Yeah. So I went into uh, the doctor's office and we had got an ultrasound, like when a, when a woman has a baby and you're, and you're, you know, viewing the baby from inside. So I'm looking at my insides effectively with this ultrasound. And while they were doing this and, and, and doing the scope at the same time, they saw in, in their words, like a racquetball where there shouldn't be a racquetball inside of my abdomen. My goodness. Uh, and things got interesting really quickly. I heard the one thing you never want to hear in a doctor's office, uh, which is, huh, as they're looking at uh, <laughs> the screen. Yeah. Uh, something that piques their interest and their interest was certainly piqued. So I went from getting 
uh, getting this assessment from one doctor in a room alone with this person to then this doctor going out in the hallway and literally gathering like eight people. And so eight people crowded, crowded into this room and they're all watching this, this screen together and they're all excited about this. And, and, you know, like, Oh my gosh, is that what, you know, get the dimensions of it and all right, what do we do next? And so they were, they were in wartime mode. I equated to me seeing a MIG out on the horizon when I was the fighter pilot and how I would just go into like execution mode. And that's definitely what was happening around me without much interest in, in what was going on with me at that point as well. Man, that's crazy. I think in the book, you describe it as the Thor show. You got all these doctors who are watching the screen. And I can't remember, did they mention the word cancer when they were looking at the screen of the ultrasound of what's in your body? At that point, they kept saying mass, but at that, you know, that was ubiquitous with, with cancer. I think at that point there, they were, they were thinking cancer and there's still things that it could have been on the table that weren't cancerous at that stage. And, and they were very quick to point those out, but it was interesting. You know, the doctors I've since learned are trained to not say cancer unless they're really serious about it. And they think that's, that is in high likelihood that it's going to be that. And so they would, they would talk around it. And, and then very quickly, the conversation over the next few days shifted to, no, we definitely think that there's something that suspiciously looks like cancer. Wow. Well, I want to ask you about what was going through your mind, but just real quick. So you're at the hospital getting this ultrasound, but that wasn't the only reason that you were there at the hospital. What else was going on with your son, JJ? Yeah, this part's almost unbelievable when I tell this to, to other people. So I typically stick with just my story because it, it really wasn't even about me. We weren't at the hospital for me. The real story is that we were there for my son because we had discovered a mass in his lung at the exact same time. And uh, it was about a nickel-sized mass, and he was three years old. So you can imagine a nickel inside of a three-year-old is, is pretty big. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, in his lungs, that's, that's the worst place that you can find it typically. And so we were lo- watching this, and we were watching it for signs of changing uh, over the past couple of weeks. And of course, my wife and I were very anxious about this. And... Uh, when we went in to go get him tested, it just happened to be across the hallway from the urology side of the hospital and uh, their, their department. And for your military listeners, you know that you can, you can pretty easily get appointments uh, quickly in our, in our military medical uh, system. And, and you know, you could, it's, it's different on the civilian side now that I've, I've seen both sides. And so I literally just walked across the hall and said, I don't have an appointment, but here's what's going on. Would it be possible for me to get a quick scan or you know, have a conversation with one of you guys? And uh, they said, sure. And that's how I got worked into their system, just because things were going to take a little longer than we expected with JJ. And then the hard part there was, so I, I get my terrible news and distressing news in my appointment. My wife's not with me because I, why would I need her? I just was getting this quick checkup done. Uh, and she's, of course, watching my son. And I leave that part of the hospital and I'm walking across the hallway and I see my wife walk out with our son. And I said, hey, I got some news to share with you. And she said, me too. JJ's mass grew and now it's the size of a quarter. Gosh. And, and so here we, we're off to the races immediately. I mean, now it's, it, our whole world is turned upside down uh, for both myself and for JJ as uh, we're trying to get out of this. That's just crazy. And it's crazy to me that you're just going in kind of casually, hey, can I see the urology department? Right. Uh, see what's going on. And the next thing you know, you think you might have cancer. I got to ask you real quick, your wife, Marsha, how did she handle her son and her husband at the same time getting these terrible reports. I mean, I know she's not here, but what advice might she give for people who are going through something like this? I can't imagine that hardly anyone goes through something like this, but just going through adversity. And what did you see her do that, that you think we could kind of take away from this experience? 
Yeah, great question. Because after it was all over with, I, I looked at that with a lot of interest as well, because she really stepped up during that time frame. And I would have described her as somebody that was a little bit more anxious and, and uh, not super strong coping mechanisms for distress. And she, I mean, she, she could handle things, but she was going to complain about it. And, and if her, her purse spilled over, then she's going to let you know. <laughs> that was, that was going to be something that frustrated her. And then all of a sudden it was like a light switched and she stepped up to handle this monumental challenge that nobody was really ready to, to, to stand up to and, and did it without complaining, without any issues. She was the rock for our family, particularly in the first month when I couldn't be. And I was just a ball of mess and anxiety and, and fear and anger and, and everything else that you go through at that time. And what I would take away from that as I watched that occur was really just this notion that all of us are capable of so much more. And I really was inspired by how Marsha stepped up when she had to. And I've since had that same impression dealing with cancer victims in general. And so here today we're recording as as we're just getting into the the implications of the COVID-19 virus and everything that that's bringing in terms of the crisis mode we're all facing today. And the one piece of advice I would give people as we endure this and anything else in life is that you're going to be very surprised at how well you can cope and how well you can step up to what you in the past would consider, um, you know, the, a mountain that you couldn't climb. And, and and you made the comment earlier, you know, not too many people go through this. I would challenge that a little bit. I think everybody has this exact same level of stress and adversity at some point in their life. You're going to have it. If you haven't had it yet, it's going to be on your calendar. It will happen in the future. If you have had already, you know what I'm talking about. You may not have, have had the dramatic circumstances like made for TV type, two people walk out of the opposite sides of a hospital type of conversation, but you've had these levels of adversity before. And, uh, and so we all need to be prepared to, to step up and, and be more when we're called. Yeah, I think that's great advice. It makes me think of ranger school going through that and just, I never thought I could operate on so little sleep. I never thought I could operate on, on so... A uh, little food, and yet you do, and then you kind of have those reference points moving forward of like, wow, I can, my mind can do, my body can do more than I think I can do. Uh, so I think that's a really good point, and an incredible testimony of your wife just just being able to manage that. What was going through your mind? Can you kind of take us back? You've just, I mean, you just found out you've got this mass in your abdomen. What are you thinking? What do you start to do? Tell us about that. So it's, it, it's a rapidly changing environment. So for the first 24 hours, you're kind of in shock and, and, you know, feeling like this is, you know, how do I process all of this? And you don't quite process it. And, and it's all a little bit surreal and you're almost watching it happen to you instead of really experiencing it. And then as the days go by, what was challenging for me is the news kept getting worse over time. So at first it was probably not cancer, but we're going to check this out, bud, and we're going to get you all set up and, you know, get you on your way. We'll figure this out all of a sudden saying it probably is cancer to not just cancer, but this particularly rare type of cancer. And, you know, over the, over the next couple of weeks having surgery and and now it's stage four cancer to the, just the hits kept coming. And so you, you're, you can't really prepare for this. So I was a fighter pilot. I did, you know, highly disciplined, challenging things in my life. And people have said in the past, well, that must've really prepared you well for this moment. And I was not at all. Like there's nothing that prepares you for being, you know, up against such a daunting, overwhelming, nonstop barrage of bad news and scary events. And uh, scary is, is the right word. You know, it's, it's, you are brought down to like your, your, you know, primal childlike perspective. Like I was a little kid 
that was just scared of dying and, uh, you know, and, and living through a nightmare. And I always, the, the thing that resonated with me the most, and I talk about this in the book, when I talk to cancer survivors, they very often say, my favorite part of the day is when I first wake up. Because yeah. when I first wake up, I'm still in that the state between the dream and wakefulness. And they'll say, oh, this was all a dream. I don't have cancer. You know, this is, I'm going to get up and have a normal day to day. And they love that because it's their one brief moment of reprieve from the nightmare that they're living. But I hated that. That was my worst part of my day. And it was because every morning I would have that exactly as they described it. But then I would say, well, wait a second. No, I went to a doctor yesterday and I kind of remember that in a lot of detail. Like that wasn't a dream, but why go to the doctor? Oh yeah, I, I went, I had this other thing going on. It is cancer and my son has a tumor and I'm not waking up from a nightmare. I'm waking up to a nightmare. And that was this horrific, you know, revelation that I would have to endure every single morning when I woke up in the initial first month. So you're going through this, you, you're going, you, it keeps getting worse and worse. Tell us about the surgery that you had to have and kind of coming out of that. And then the news you got a couple of days later. Yep. So the surgery, uh, they, uh, they opened me up and, and went and took about 10 inches of intestine. They took a part of my small intestine. They took a part of my bladder. They took all of my appendix, of course, because that's really where this all originated from, appendix cancer. And when that was over with, they said it was a really strange tumor, not like something we've seen in the past. And they said, and it looked like it originated in the, in the appendix. And I remember thinking, well, good. Who needs an appendix? Like, you know, it's- <laughs> It's like pinky toe cancer, who cares? But they were really serious about it. And of course, I started Googling it now and I find out that it's way worse than anything I'd even thought about and Googled in the past up to this point about the type of cancers we we had discussed being on the table. And so now I was up against something even more challenging. But now my cancer had a name. Now I had the ability to to plan against it and, uh, and to build the right team to go fight it. And so this was the beginning of me stepping up to it and the transition that took place. Because before that, I was literally just a heaping mass of, of anxiety and a puppy dog that would follow my wife around the house. I was unable, incapable of doing anything uh, around the house by myself. Yeah, just, just a really sad, sad state of affairs. Yeah, and I appreciate your willingness to be vulnerable about that in the book. I think we can all relate to that a little bit of just having those feelings of feeling sorry for myself, Woe is me. And of course, you know, you're going through something terrible. So it's, it's certainly understandable. And then you find out it's appendix cancer. And so you get a specialist appointment down in Houston. I think there's a powerful moment in the book where you're driving to Houston and you have this anxiety come over you. Can you tell us why you were feeling that anxiety heading to Houston? Yeah, absolutely. So Houston's about a three hour drive from where I lived in San Antonio. And I'm driving out there, and this should be a moment of relief. And here's why. Because I really fought to get into this hospital. It's called MD Anderson. It's where the specialists are. Once we discovered what type of cancer I had and how you know, I was really the first person in the Air Force to ever get it, then all of a sudden it was a, a little bit of a battle for me to get out of the military medical system and get into the specialist side on, with the civilians. And so you can imagine there's some admin we had to go through and some loopholes, red tape rather not loopholes, to, to go through in order to get into MD Anderson. Finally got through it. I got the approval. I get to go there with my family. This is the care that, if there is hope, is going to give me a second chance. As I'm driving to this hospital, though, I have this sense of dread, and it just gets worse as I get closer, and I can't put my finger on it. At this point, I've been dealing with this for four months, or four weeks, excuse me. And so, 
you know, I'm, I'm certainly no stranger to bad news and, and having bad days, but for some reason, this, everything was just peaking on this drive over there. And we get to the hospital and my wife switches place with me and I get out of the car and she goes to park it. So I'm walking into the hospital by myself. Downtown Houston, if you can picture it, these huge skyscrapers, this hospital is a huge skyscraper. And I'm walking up and I'm staring up at these windows that go up into infinity. And I realize why I have such this sense of dread. It's because I'm walking into the building that I'm going to die in pretty soon and probably take my last views out of one of those windows that I'm looking at right now. And I'll never forget the weight of everything just came crashing down on me in that moment. And I slowed my walk and I stopped and I closed my eyes and I looked up and I had tears streaming down my face. And I said, God, where are you? Like, you don't deserve this. This is, this is not what I've lived my entire life the right way. I've done the things I'm supposed to do. And now I have, excuse my being crude, I have a bag of urine strapped to my side and I have a massive surgery scar on me. I'm a broken person and I'm walking into the building. I'm going to die in and my son has a mass in his chest. And this isn't fair. Heal me right now. You need to fix this. Heal me. And I'll never forget, I opened my eyes in, the, in this moment, the lowest I've ever felt in my life. And I locked eyes with another person. There was a little girl who was being wheeled into the hospital and she's staring right at me and she's got beautiful blue eyes and she's got a surgical mask over her face and she's got a bald head and she's looking right at me. And as she's staring at me and being wheeled into this hospital but I, by who I could presume is her father, I can see that she's afraid. She's looking at me. And in that moment, literally that second, every ounce of self-pity went away. Every ounce of, this is the worst moment of my life. Lord, you need to heal me. Lord, where are you, God? Where, why have you left us like this? Was gone and replaced with, God, I'm the most blessed guy in the world. I have a beautiful family. I'm 33 years old. I'm, I'm a fighter pilot living the life I dreamed of as a boy. And that little girl won't live to be a teenager. Don't help me help her. And she was wheeled into the hospital and the doors closed behind her. And in that, in that second, I realized I'd, I'd you know, basically witnessed and, and been a part of like a God whisper, a God moment that, mm -hmm. that that was something bigger than me. And as I'm contemplating this, and as I look back at that over the years, that moment, I realized that God answered my prayer right that second because I asked him to heal me. And he did, but he didn't do it in the physical way. And I did a lot more healing uh, physically beyond that point, but he healed me in the way that I, that I needed, uh, not the way that I wanted. That was to repair me inside and, and, to, and to take away the self-pity and the self-absorption that I'd had and to realize that my reaction was a choice. And not only in that, that moment, if I could go from the lowest low I had ever experienced in my life in the second beforehand to like a light switch having none of that and feeling nothing but empathy for a little girl who was enduring something similar. And that next second, I realized that I could make that decision for the rest of my life. And I said, well, I'm never going to feel sorry for myself again. And it's transforming. So, I mean, that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book because of that experience, I said, I, I have to share the decision that we all get to make in the midst of our suffering. Wow, man, that's incredible. What an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it. And thank you for, yeah. I mean, just thank you for 
God giving you that story and then you being willing to, to share it as your testimony. It's incredible. And it's just that reminder of perspective and just how important that is and how shifting your perspective can make all the difference. And uh, so then you go into the hospital, you think you're going to have to get this mother of all surgeries that you've done your, your Google research. Tell us about what you find out and then tell us about going through chemotherapy and the perspective that that gave you moving forward. Yeah. So, so I go in there and the surgery that you're alluding to the mother of all surgeries, and I'm, I'm deeply connected with the, the community of people that still have appendix cancer and the new diagnoses each year. And I was actually on the, the forums this morning and talking with them. And so this is the thing they all dread, like that when you find out that you have to get treated for this, the big scary thing that you've got to do is the surgery that even doctors term the mother of all surgeries. It's this 13 hour procedure. If you Google it, it it's like a, uh, it's like a, a video of, you know, or a description of a saw movie. And what they do is they cut you open from your sternum down to your pelvis. They take out as many of the expendable quote unquote organs they can. So they remove your spleen, they remove uh, half of your intestines and uh, a couple other things that they consider expendable in your body. And then they put a hot chemo wash inside of you. So 130 degrees to scald your insides with chemotherapy and they rock you back and forth on the table to get it into every nook and cranny. And then meanwhile, they take your other organs that they're going to leave in there and they pull them out and on the, on the table next to you. And they take what's the equivalent of basically a cheese grater to them to get the outer layer of skin off of it, assuming that there's the cancer cells on them. So just this horrific, like you couldn't even, if this was in a movie, you would say that's, that's beyond silly, uh, but it's something that these poor people have to endure. So that's what I thought was ahead of me, the mother of all surgeries. And I get into this doctor's office and I said, all right, so I'm, I'm ready for you to tell me when we're going to do that. And he had this great conversation around quantity of life and quality of life and how at some point we may have to borrow from your quality of life to increase your quantity of life. And he said, and that surgery will certainly do that, but we're not at that stage yet. And I don't believe that it's going to have any preventative uh, aspects to it. So there's not a reason to, to do it. And he said, well, you know, very likely, yes, that's going to be in your future. And you're going to have, I'm going to have a conversation with you about that in the future let's preserve your quality of life as long as we can. And then if we have to go down that road in the future, we will. And I thought, what, what, a, what a methodical approach to, to something that was scaring me and uh, yeah. a smart way to think about this. So I started chemo. And chemo is, uh, you know, sitting in a room with, with 15 other people and you're hooked up to a machine as it's slowly dripping poison into your body. Chemo is like starting a fire in your house to kill a rat. Uh, that's that's made a nest somewhere, and you know you're burning part of your house down, but you're hoping that you you kill the rat uh, before you destroy too much of your house. But you're going to destroy something in the process. And so, as we're getting chemo, I got to meet all these other people fighting other cancers, and uh, it was amazing to see how once again they were stepping up. And I was seeing people in their finest hours, and the level of courage and bravery that this brought out in them, this struggle brought out in them. I was just so humbled to be around that. And I consistently, every time I go back to these cancer hospitals, I feel more like a visitor now than, than an actual member of their, of their group. But it, I, I'm always in awe of people and, and what they're capable of when, when standing up against the, the most adverse moments of their lives. And so when we sit in there, instead of doing the woe is me talk and complaining and everything that you kind of would think would take place in, at this point in your lives, everybody's really optimistic. And so as you're all talking, all these people are saying the, the things they're going to do when they get better. You know, I, I've been talking about going to the World Cup for years. I never did it. I'm going to finally do that. As soon as I get better, I'm getting World Cup tickets. I'm going to go there. 
I can't wait. It's going to be a blast. Another person will say, you know, I always said I was going to start a business. And it was something I dreamed of since I was a little kid. I've been stuck in this job. I, if I get a second chance, I am definitely starting this business because it's, it's what I wanted to do forever. And we all talk like that. So we all describe the dreams that we pursue when we, you know, hopefully inevitably got better. And then the sad truth of it was, as you continue spending time with this group, because it was over an eight-month period that I was doing chemotherapy every two weeks, inevitably somebody wouldn't show up to the next one. And it wasn't necessarily because they died, but sometimes it was. It was because the, the treatment wasn't working and they were, had run out of options and they had to come face-to-face with the fact that they weren't going to get that second chance. And when you endure something like that and you survive it, very often you experience what psychologists call survivor's remorse, survivor's guilt. And this is a common thing that takes place with our service members when they come back and the rest of their team was killed or some, a group of their team was killed. And they think, you know, why did I survive that? I didn't deserve to come back. I didn't do anything differently. And you, ser- you literally have a sense of guilt and remorse over having come back when others didn't. And I didn't experience that. I did experience something that I called survivor's obligation. And that was to live out the dreams and the commitments that we made in that room together, knowing that I did get a second chance and I didn't deserve it. And I didn't do anything differently than they did. And I didn't want it any more than they did. I just got this second chance and here it was. And instead of feeling guilty or remorseful about it, I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to realize the things I talked about in that room and to change my life in a meaningful way. And so Survivor's Obligation, the book title and, and meeting up with my co-author, Chris Strickland, and, and everything from that came from, from those moments. So tell us about what that meant for you in terms of the way you changed your mindset, the, maybe the way you live differently, and then speak to us a little bit about how maybe that affects us and maybe how some advice you would give us for how we can live out our survivor's obligation. Yeah. So the, really the big epiphany for me when I was 33 years old and I was told I had 18 months to live and a 15% chance to live five years and, and very little likelihood that this, the treatments were going to work. The big epiphany for me was not that I was going to die in 18 months or this year. It was really that I was going to die period there. You know, I always had this notion of death in my mind and it's not like I thought I was invincible or any of those silly things. But it was just something that was going to happen a long time from now. And it wasn't something I had to plan against. And it wasn't something that I had to think about, certainly not on a daily basis. But now all of a sudden I did. And I realized that, well, you know what? If I, even if I live another 40 years, 50 years, it's not a ton of time to do all these things that I said I was going to do. And if I'm really being honest with myself, I've been coasting for a while. And even as a fighter pilot, I've been firmly inside of my comfort zone and doing things that you know, posing for pictures at flybys for NFL games and, and at air shows and flying upside down three feet away from another aircraft at 450 miles an hour, it seems like it's, it's something uh, that's outside your comfort zone until you realize I had done it so many times that I could literally make like my grocery list uh, while I was doing it. And so, and so I realized that I was complacent and I was coasting. And one of the key takeaways I had for myself was, well, if I do get this second chance, I'm going to push myself out of my comfort zone every single day. And so there were three things that I said I was going to do differently in life because they were the three keys to my happiness when I was at my lowest points. And this first one I'm alluding to is growth. Call them my three G's. First G is growth. Growth implies that you get outside of your comfort zone every single day. And getting outside of your comfort zone is not pain for the sake of pain. It's not masochism. It's not, you know, 
taking taking pain because it's it's good. It's saying pain is a tool and pain, discomfort is a tool. And very often the best parts of our lives are on the other side of fear. They're on the other side of our comfort zone. And we need to force ourselves to go into that area. And, and if you're wondering, well, I don't, I'm not quite sure what I connect with and what's the purpose of my life and what's meaning, ask yourself what you're afraid of. What are the things that, you, that, would, that stop you every day from acting? And they're probably the things that you need to do the most in order to get connected to that sense of purpose and the, the life that you're missing. Thoreau said that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Mm. And I think that is just as true now as, as it was when it was written in the 1800s. Most people are quietly going through life desperately unattached to a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. They're busy but not productive. Uh, they're, they are surrounded by people but still feel alone. And this was a way for me to not be stuck in that life anymore, this idea of growth and doing something every day that scared me. The second G stands for giving. From a giving perspective, I'll say something that, you know, we probably have all seen in a Hallmark card before uh, or on a meme, that giving is, giving is a selfish act, that you're actually, the, the person that benefits the most from giving is you. And, and we say that, but I don't know if we really internalize that and really realize that. And I'll tell you, from my example, when I was dealing with cancer and chemotherapy, and I was a shell of the man I was before, I'd gone from being a Thunderbird pilot finalist to somebody that could, you know, barely get to the bathroom by themselves. One of the things I would do was during this time, I had the opportunity to give back and help create this youth outreach program in San Antonio to help kids that uh, were struggling with uh, this, this horrific dropout rate and only a 35% graduation in high school. What I realized was that when I was helping those kids and, and with them, that was the only time I could forget about my own challenges. And when I was reaching down to help them up and giving them my life lessons and I was seeing them change and transform, the giving of myself was quite literally the, the only way for me to escape everything that I was enduring in that moment. And it was, it was like this magic uh, little you know, tool I had that, that I'd never known of in the past that was super powerful. And I knew I had to keep that with me for the rest of my life. And then the last G is gratitude. And that just goes back to that moment with that, that little girl as she's being wheeled in. And how in a moment, I was able to see all the wonderful things in my life and, and the things that I had been blessed with, but I had, had, had been blocking out that were, were in my blind spot, focused on all the negative instead of the gratitude. There's a great quote, quote from Teddy Roosevelt that comparison is the thief of all joy. Hmm. I think it's 100% true. It's even more applicable today when we compare ourselves against the highlight reels that we see on social media ourselves against you know all the impressive things we see going on around us and we wonder why our lives don't look like that comparison is the thief of all joy well if comparison is the thief of all joy then gratitude is the source of joy and finding those things to be grateful for every day is uh, the way to counter that that self-pity that all of us can get caught on that that, that sense of purposelessness Man, that's so good. I love, I love your three G's. And so do you ever find yourself kind of losing perspective or, you know, you, you're kind of, as you get farther away from this experience, do you, do you have any tools for regaining perspective or has it been pretty easy and natural to keep perspective after having gone through this? So here's what I'd say. It's a journey, of course. And the, I've learned so much more uh, beyond the three G's and, and just how to just, just better ways from other folks to, to approach each day. And, and every day it gets a little bit better and, and, and exciting in a, in a really positive way. I mean, the, the, the thing to remember here 
And the thing that we anchor on in the book is that we all carry the scars from the trials that we've endured in life, whether you can see them and that's a physical scar because you were involved in war or you have cancer surgery and, and literally somebody can see those scars of that, or it's the mental and, and you know, spiritual scars of the things that we've endured as well. Those scars exist. We don't get to choose whether or not we have that post-traumatic stress, but we do get to choose whether or not we have post-traumatic growth on the other side of it. Post-traumatic growth is a phenomenon that's just as real as post-traumatic stress, and they're just starting to learn about the power of post-traumatic growth, but what they're finding out is the inevitable suffering we go through in life very often is associated with the most transformative moments in our lives, and it's not as if we wish for pain, and it's not as if it justifies the pain or we're excited about these horrible things that we endure. It's merely saying, I'm going to be more on the other side of this. I'm going to live out my obligation and use this pain and the clarity that I got from these moments to be something different on the other side. Mm, I love that. And the other thing I think about is that a lot of times the things that I go through or have been through, it gives me a deeper sense of compassion for anyone that's going through that. For example, my parents got divorced. So anytime someone's going through a divorce, I can relate to that on a different level. And I've had friends who've had miscarriages, for example, and it seems like they have this terrible experience for them personally, but then it gives them this ability to empathize on a deeper level with people who are going through that. I think that's kind of a different aspect to what you're talking about there is that post-traumatic growth. So I love that. Yeah, that empathy that we all learn and that sense of community. We all think, I think, in our own heads that we are, we're the only ones who endure this and we're the only ones who are exposed to this, this sort of thing. And, and like I said earlier, we all have the story of struggle. Every single one of us does. It may not be the, this, the dramatic story that I'm describing here, but it's either divorce or hopelessness or loss of a loved one. So we're all survivors of something. And we have to ask ourselves, do we survive that to merely endure on the other side of that? Or is there an opportunity for clarity, renewed growth, and a transformative moment for us as well? How has your faith grown through this? You mentioned it a little bit about just kind of battling with God a little bit there right in front of the Houston hospital, but how, how has your faith changed with this experience? So I've, I've always been a Christian in the sense that, you know, I was, I was raised a Christian and I did rely on a Christian faith growing up and that was something that was important to me, but it wasn't really tested to the same extent. And it wasn't ever something that uh, was tangible in the sense, other than, you know, I knew someday I'd die and go be with God and, and be in heaven. And when grandparents died, that was, that was what happened with them. And uh, so, so it was, it was once again, a, a superficial relationship. And now that was put to the test. And I talked about it from the challenging aspects and how I had to uh, redefine my relationship with God and really get out the negative feelings I, I had at that moment as I was saying, hey, I trusted in you and, and here I am. And, and God not so subtly shouted back, I'm still in control and I'm not up here biting my fingernails about what's going to happen. And I'm not promising you you're going to come out healthy, but I'm going to be here the entire time. You know, I'm going to either lead you out of this into good health or I'm going to lead you through this into eternity. And that's what we all face. You know, that none of us are getting out of here alive. Uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead. But the story we never hear again is the second time he died. And he, he didn't get that a chance beyond that either. And so we have to make the best use of uh, the opportunities we have on life. Yeah, I think sometimes in the modern world that we live in with technology, we're all so connected. Sometimes we think that there's nothing we can't control, I think, these days. I and mean, you think about Kobe Bryant and 
you know, 41 years old, he's on a helicopter and he loses yeah. his life, his 13 year old daughter. And now we're going through the COVID-19, the impact It reminds us of our own mortality and, and just how we think we can control things, but then so much is out of our control. Uh, and I think sometimes it's moments like this and, and facing that reality of death that maybe helps us put things in perspective and also live a more courageous life. So Thor, real quick as we're wrapping up, I would love to just kind of do a lightning round of questions for you. Feel free to pass on any of these um, as we're finishing up, but you have a lot of great experience with your transition. So first question, what's your top piece of advice for folks transitioning? You transitioned that, I think, 15 years from the military? I did. And uh, so what's your top piece of advice for folks transitioning from the military into the civilian world? Yeah, I did the unthinkable. I left it 15 years. That was part of my survivor's obligation. That was certainly out of my comfort zone uh, to leave the guaranteed retirement at 20 years and everything else. But I knew that was a check. That's what I committed to in the chemo room. And, uh, and so that was my survivor's obligation I was going to, to live. And then as you're alluding to, Cal, I have, we have this unique perspective in the business that I, I run now, this 24-year-old consulting company called Afterburner that employs former elite military team members. So we got one foot in the military world and we help out corporations and we translate the principles that kept us uh, successful in the complex, chaotic uh, battlefields of the world to the boardroom. And so very often I'm helping other military members transition into a great corporate career. And I have a lot of lessons learned from my own transition as well. Here's the one thing I say over and over again to the transitioning veterans. It's kind of a two-part statement. First, you are better equipped to help out in the corporate world than you realize right now. And what I mean by that is the corporate world needs your sense of urgency, your bias towards action, your ability to build a quick plan with an inclusive environment where you're leveraging the teams uh, from all parts and all cultures and maybe people that don't speak the same language, sometimes people that don't even like each other as you're building this alliance out and then you're helping the team to execute that plan uh, and you don't have the luxury of waiting for a perfect plan. You know you've got to have an 80% plan and start action on it now and then iterate as you as you execute. That mindset, those principles, that methodology that's just kind of second nature for us is something that is extremely valuable in the corporate world. So the first part of that equation is that you have more than you realize uh, to offer the corporate world right now. It's probably not in the areas you think it is. And then the second part of that conversation is, but you're not ready. You are not ready to translate those skills, everything you've learned into corporate speak yet and it's because you're restarting. You're hitting reset on your life. And I get it. You are a lieutenant colonel or a senior master sergeant. You've been to war. You've done these amazing things. And you expect that just to immediately translate in your business world. And you have your OPR, your EPR, your performance report that says that you walk on water and you've been in charge of an $800 million program and blah, blah, blah. All those things. I have those bullets too. But guess what? None of that means anything when you get into the corporate world. Example I like to give folks is imagine if Tom Brady, who's leaving the Patriots right now as we speak, Tom Brady comes into your squadron or your unit and says, hey, I want to join your team. I want to be an army. And you say, holy cow, it's Tom Brady. How cool is this? Well, Tom, you know, what's, what do you, what do you, what's your plans for us? What's your plans for the future? And, and how have you prepared to get here? And Tom Brady says, well, let me tell you about this time when we had our backs against the wall against the Falcons. It was a Super Bowl. And I did this great halftime speech and I got us out of it. And you're thinking, well, that's a great story. And I'm, I'm really rooting for Tom Brady, and I'd love to have him on the team, but I got 10 other people that are, that are here, and they've already gone to Ranger School, and they've done the things they were supposed to do to get here, 
And now here's Tom. I'm kind of scratching my head as to how I can bring you in. And he's kind of trying to coast on this previous life that he led. Tom, I'd love to bring you in. I'm happy to buy a beer for you. I'll pose for a selfie with you, but I can't bring you onto the team right now because you're just not ready. That's a really tough pill for a lot of our elite military team members to swallow because we're, I think in our heads, we just think we're going to translate so quickly. And, and I certainly did. I figured that I just immediately go into the business world and it would be easy. And the tough, the tough truth to hear is that you won't and you need to put a ton of work into it. And I had to read a book a week. I still read a book a week, but I had to do that at least for a year in order to just begin to speak the language of the business community that I was about to enter. And then and only then was I ready. And then the second part of that, which is optimistic, is once you can speak that language and once you can translate your experiences, you are off to the races. Like I'm telling you, you're going to pass by your peers faster than anybody else. You're going to do amazing things, get bigger opportunities. But it's only when you can translate those in a credible way and you spent the time to invest and learn about the, the group that you're joining instead of just showing up and saying, where's my parking spot? That's great. That's so good. You mentioned books. Give me your top two books. I know you probably got a ton of books you could pull from, but what, what are maybe the top two that come to mind that have impacted you the most? Yep. And you know, as a Christian, the Bible, of course, but I'm not going to recommend that here just for the sake of giving you guys new books to, to go read. So if you're going to say, what, what's the number one book to read? If it, my most gifted book right now is a, uh, is a uh, man's search for meaning by Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl went through uh, world war II in a concentration camp. He was a psychologist, a very successful doctor before world war II. He lost everything in his concentration camp. At first, it was just all of his notes and the books he had written and everything else was just taken away and burned and destroyed forever. So literally everything that added up to the sum, the sum of his accomplishments up until that point was destroyed. And it just didn't, didn't exist and it never would again. And then to make matters worse, every member of his family was killed there. So he had a child that was killed there. He had a wife that was killed there. And he survived. And very similar to the Survivor's Obligation book, he had to figure out, you know, for what? And, and is there something to survive for? And do I just find my, the, my existence at the bottom of a bottle from this point forward? And he had to go through some really soul-searching questions and figure out, well, what is the meaning that we can all pursue in life? And it's an incredible book that, that he explores, not just for himself, but for hundreds of other people. And, uh, and it's been an important one. Uh, and if you're paying attention, you can see it mentioned quite a bit, actually, in, uh, in other places. And then the second book, it depends on the category, but I'm going to give you one more in the development category, and that's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And that's because that, that book is timeless. You can keep going back to that again and again and get something new each time and see about personal development. I really think that's the, that's the secret to life is realizing that you'll never arrive. There's never a finish line. You're improving every day. Uh, I don't have all the answers. Every day I get a little bit more of a glimpse and two answers. And it, that's exciting to me. Um, and, 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 and when you get on that train, the learning train and the, the, the upgrade your human uh, train, then, then world, every day is more fun. And, it, and life does get better. I'm in my 40s right now. My 40s are way better than my 30s. My 30s are way better than my 20s. All right. That's good to hear. Better <laughs> when, you're, when, you're, when you're growing and you're challenging yourself to do that. I know plenty of people that are millionaires that have great companies and tons of success outwardly, but they've stopped growing and they've stopped challenging themselves and they're miserable. They just, they, you know, they just can't be around, can't stand being around themselves. Uh, and it's truly because I think they, they haven't learned how to continue developing themselves and developing a community that they're excited about. Mm, that's great. 
what it would be your top marriage and parenting advice, especially after what you've been through? <sighs> top marriage advice is, let's see. So we, are, we just celebrated our 15-year anniversary. My wife's still my best friend. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think the adversity highlights what's already there uh, when, you, when you go through these tough times. And so it either brings you to the brink of divorce or it brings you closer as a family. And for us, it brought us closer as a family, which I'm proud to say, but it, but it also took a lot of work for us to get through those tough times to get to the other side. And so just, just as there was an individual journey that had to take place through the tougher moments in my life, and, and now I had come up with the three G's and other things to cope and, and to, to get through that with a, with a practical approach, we, we do the same thing in our marriage. And, and, and we, it, the marriage gets better uh, year after year if you're taking that same type of growth mentality that we're doing this together. And it can get real easy, just as it was really easy to get stuck in my comfort zone individually, and stuck in my, in, you know, just coasting, it can get real easy to do that in a marriage as well. And, and I would challenge you to find new ways to grow each year. There should be, you should have goals for your marriage to take it beyond where you were the year before. As far as being a dad, I don't know. This is that, that's the best part of uh, my life. And, and in terms of advice for other folks, I think the thing I'm coming up against is just that you have so little time so my 13-year-old, you know, a couple of years away from applying to colleges and, and leaving the house and is the same one who had the tumor in his lung. He's doing great now. And uh, as once again, it, as I'm realizing that, I'm thinking, gosh, there's so many things that I just want to, to learn with him, to teach him, the, the journeys that I wanted to take him on. And, I, and it makes me wonder, like, was it really worth it watching Netflix by myself last week mm. and, you know, do, doing something that didn't involve the rest of the family? There is so little time. Uh, to, to spend together at the end of the day and making that investment, it'll pay off in the short term and, and give you dividends in the long term. That's so good. I, I heard something the other day in reference to marriage and it was a, a guy saying, hey, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on my personal growth, but when was the last time we grew together? And that hit me. I was like, because I spent a lot of time on this podcast and individually growing, but I'm not sure that I've done a good job intentionally growing together as a couple. So I love what you said there. Um, Thor, as we're finishing up here, we got like a minute left. What is the best way for people to connect with you? Actually, real quick, American Ninja Warrior, you're doing that yeah. like in April, right? Yes. Well, you know, so that with COVID-19, that's put the destination on hold. We're still doing okay. it. I'm not aware yet, but uh, that's so cool. I'm competing on Ninja Warrior. Can't wait to do it. I'm definitely ready. We'll ring that buzzer this year, get to the top of it and, and have a lot of fun. And then the best way to connect with you and to find out more about Afterburner, where's the best place to do that? Yeah. So I am, I spend most of my time and am accessible uh, the most on LinkedIn. I've got an okay. Instagram account as well. And I've got, you know, Facebook, that's more for the, the smaller circle of friends, but LinkedIn, I connect with tons of people all the time. Do not hesitate to reach out to me there. I do answer every message that I receive on LinkedIn. I may not answer it that day, but I'll get back to you. And, uh, and, and I love these conversations. So if you're transitioning, if you're if you have questions about any of this stuff, I, I promise you, you're not going to stump me. It's not something I haven't heard before. And so let's have that dialogue. That's part of the giving piece. That's, uh, that's once again, my very selfish act of uh, making myself feel good. So hey, do me that favor and give me that chance. Well, that's awesome. Hey, everyone, go buy the book, Survivor's Obligation. I'll make sure and put links to it on my website, calwalters.me. I'll also put a link to Afterburner's website and make sure you guys can connect with Joel with all of his uh, LinkedIn accounts. So Joel, 
Thor, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, wish you well. Thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for sharing your story today with, with this audience. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Cal. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing what you're doing as well. I know it makes a big difference. Well, I appreciate it, man. You take care. Thank you.